you would take your Bibles, go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. While you're turning, I heard a story this past week about a lady brings her car to the, um, to the auto mechanic shop. And the uh, service technician gets the paperwork and it says the, the lady reports that whenever she turns right, she hears a clunking sound. When she turns left, she hears a clunking sound. So the mechanic said, well, let's take it down the road and check it out. Sure enough, he's heading down the road. When he turns right, here's the clunking sound. When he turns left, here's the clunking sound. So he said, well, I'll get it back and uh, back in the shop and take a look, see if we can figure out what's going on. And so uh, next thing you know, he uh, turns in the, uh, the service report and uh, puts a notation on the bottom of it, remove bowling ball from the trunk. That, that would be uh, probably something that would happen to me, um, me personally, not my wife. But uh, anyhow, 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, um, we're getting ready to read a text that I believe is a very important text for all of us to know and understand. Uh, I've said this a number of times in my ministry, and certainly as the day approaches for the return of Christ and we see the condition of the church continue to, um, to be characterized by perilous times. Uh, we are certainly in the Laodicean church age, and we're seeing some perilous times that are indicative of the last days. And uh, in my, uh, it is my conviction that the Holy Spirit uh, just continues to just kind of back off from uh, working uh, among people. I'm not saying that God is not working. Please don't misunderstand me. But I read biographies, I read church history, and uh, there have been some times when God was really working in the hearts of people. And it just seems, like we preached last week, that God has been uh, very, very silent, and that silence continues to increase. And as God backs off, you know, we talk about God judging America. I don't know that God has to lower the boom on America. He just has to continue to withdraw or back off and just let men do what men are doing. And we're seeing that pretty rampant in our nation. I know I've jokingly said it here in recent times with all that's going on in our country that uh, I've said all along that uh, one day God's going to judge America, but uh, I'm thinking now that maybe America is going to get off with an insanity plea. That's that's kind of a joke or an attempted joke. But uh, just a lot of crazy things going on in our nation, and that doesn't concern me as much as what I see going on among God's people, the church. It's a very pivotal, very important passage of Scripture that we're going to be reading, but I wanted to share just a brief story, something that really solidified in my heart that this is what God wanted me to preach here this morning. I read an article by, um, by a preacher, a very lengthy article this past week, and in that lengthy article, basically, he was trumpeting... Uh, two very popular men of God, or two popular preachers, I should say. And the entire article was basically a reference to how that these men 
had stood so strong and it had so much backbone. One of the men that he was talking about, I, um, I personally uh, know quite a bit about, and this man is, um, is gone to home to be with the Lord. The other is a younger man that's still alive, and um, I don't know as much about him, but as this preacher was talking about these two men, I, I happen to know that the preacher that's gone home to be with the Lord probably wouldn't have appreciated being lumped in the same category with this other preacher. And it, it started getting my mind, I was already thinking in that direction of how in recent times in Christianity, because we have so many media outlets, I think that the carnality of God's people in trumpeting men and movements has increasingly gotten out of hand. You know, we read biographies, and I've enjoyed some really good Christian biographies about some really, really good Christian men, men like Whitfield and Wesley and Spurgeon and Finney. And I find that in their day and age that these good men were imperfect men. And many of them had squabbles with one another while they were still alive. And, you know, I, I guess when you, when you hear about good men, imperfect men, and the result of their ministry ends up being more contention than it does edification, I'd have to say that personally it becomes just a little bit discouraging. Let's get to our text now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and look with me at verse number 1, where Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling." My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Our message comes from verse number 5 this morning, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I want to preach this morning on the subject, standing faith. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us today. Father, we need your blessings and we need your grace, we need your help. Lord, this message is an important message. Lord, it's a timely message. Lord, uh, what Paul wrote to Corinth, uh, I believe that every Christian in America today needs to be reminded of this principle. Lord, we have way too many Christian celebrities. We have way too many um, meccas, if you will, we have way too much man worship, and uh, Lord, uh, the end result of all of this is often carnality and, Lord, at, be at, at best, confusion. So, Lord, please help us to present this message clearly and concisely, and may the Holy Spirit of God use it to give us wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. As I read verses 1 through 5... I'm really impressed of how the Apostle Paul was a man of ethics and integrity. 
He wasn't trying to make a name for himself and did not concern himself with the results of his ministry. In fact, I read in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse number 1, where Paul said, It is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then he goes on, and in verse number 5, he says, Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. We referenced this passage of Scripture, Brother Glenn and I, this past week on Salt and Light, when we were talking about the present location of paradise. How that Jesus, when he resurrected, he took Abraham's bosom, which was in the heart of the earth, and when he resurrected, he took that into the third heaven. And the Apostle Paul says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, and he said, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, that this man was caught up to the third heaven. And he said that this this man, and I believe personally, and if you read that in uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, it seems so strong that Paul is actually referring to himself. He just doesn't want to come out and say that I experienced this. Now, nowadays, you would not find somebody who experienced what Paul experienced and handle it with the ethics and integrity that Paul did. They would have to write a book or make a movie, and they'd have to, you know, capitalize on it some way. But Paul said, I don't want this glory. He said, the only thing I'm going to glory in is the troubles and tribulations, the suffering that I'm going through. And so Paul was a man of ethics and integrity. He wasn't seeking glory for himself. He wasn't enamored with his results. Now let's back up in our Bible here to chapter number 1. And I want you to look at verse number 27, where Paul said that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Why? Verse 29 explains it, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I think we can all be honest and admit that there is way too much man and movement glory in American Christianity today. You know, there, I, I find that there are as many ministers today that are seeking glory by being unsavory as those that are seeking glory with sugarcoating. Especially among, I guess what I would say, Bible-believing Christianity. One appeals to the masculine flesh. I, I think that that's probably what I read in that article of just trumpeting the fact that here's two men that are well-known that praising them for their backbone. And, and you know what I found interesting about the article is that everybody that had the backbone to criticize those men were considered in a derogative ter- term and tone. So I'm like, this is very inconsistent. Backbone is great. 
I, I think that every Christian ought to have some backbone. But I don't think that backbone is what we should be praising because sometimes back people with backbone, we, we get confused. Sometimes it's not backbone or courage at all. It's just being a jerk. So some appeals to masculine flesh... Other appeals to intellectual flesh, that's the deep doctrines and the thinkers, and then others to emotional flesh, producing a feeling, but it's all still flesh. And that's why Paul is saying that our glorying needs to be in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in our intellect, not in our feelings, not in our courage, not in all of those things. We need to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Many ministers are having successful ministries, and I wonder, and I'm not judging these men because I don't know their heart, but sometimes some of the things that they say, it makes me question whether or not their motives are sincere or if they're just trying to uh, get attention on themselves, trying to produce a following. You know, I, I think a lot of times we respond to personalities rather than the Holy Spirit. Every minister has a personality, and every personality is going to be different. And, and you're going to see, I'm going to say in this message later on, that every minister has his faults and his failures, and there is absolutely no doubt about that. But you know, would you respond, you know, I get some really interesting junk mail, don't you? I mean, I, if I responded to all the junk mail, do you know how many millions of dollars I'd be in debt right now? Now, I, I don't bring the junk mail into the house and say, you know what? This says that if I'll just, if I'll just sign this and return it, postage paid envelope, then they will send me a check for $60,000. You know, all the fine print is that I gotta pay it back, right? Can you imagine if I came and says, honey, I, we gotta, we gotta send this in. Cause I just like that postman so much. They just did such a great job delivering the mail and I just, they're so nice and I like them so much. I've got to respond to this junk mail. Of course, that sounds ridiculous, right? But how often do Christians respond to a personality instead of seeing the message behind that personality. Paul is making it clear that our faith needs to stand in the Lord Jesus Christ in the truthful message and not in the wisdom, enticing words, or personality of the man that delivered it. And so standing faith, the first thing I want to talk to you about is the simplicity of the message. If we're going to have standing faith here today, we've got to understand that the message that we're standing on is a very simple message. Look with me at chapter 1 and verse number 17, where Paul says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Paul says, I'm not here to impress you. I'm not here to tickle your intellectual fancy. I'm here to deliver you a simple message of Christ crucified. 
Verse number 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Have you ever noticed how that lost men with liberal thinking minds just flock by the thousands to many ministries in this country today? even though there's no preaching of the cross hardly to speak of? It's, it's pop psychology, and you need to feel good about yourself, and you can, I mean, you can do it. And it becomes this emotional pep talk, and hardly any mention, and sometimes no mention whatsoever, of the cross of Jesus Christ. You know why they can, that's why they can, flock there by the thousands, because the preaching of the the cross is not savory to the lost or carnal mind. It's just something that's like, you know what, that, that just doesn't appeal to me. That doesn't make me feel good about me. And by the way, everything that you need to know about salvation, you can find it at the cross. Everything that you need to know, you can find it at the cross. You say, well, I don't, there's not the Ten Commandments. Look, if you don't think that God hates sin, you just try to picture His Son hanging on Calvary's cross and what He did for you and I because of our sin. If that doesn't make you feel guilty or convicted, then your heart's pretty hard. Everything that we need for salvation, we can find it at the cross of Calvary. Notice with me at verse number 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? You know, there are a lot of people that are good disputers of this world. Good debaters. They can win an argument. You know, I, I got to be honest with you, you're looking at a man that's just not the best at debating or winning arguments. How many times have I had a conversation with someone that wasn't like-minded, and they start saying all this stuff, and I'm standing there, uh, and as soon as they walk away, I get about 12 verses, boom, 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 boom. Oh man, I would have get, I would have let him have it. <laughs> you know what? That doesn't mean there are some people that just don't have that type of personality. I, I think that much of the winners of debates, they don't necessarily do it with their information; they do it with their personality. I, I remember, I remember, uh, brother, in being in Trinidad. And I remember trying to witness to some of the people there, and you know what? They wouldn't even give me a chance to talk. And I'm being polite. I'm a foreigner. I'm a, I'm, I'm a guest here. And so I'm being polite, and Brother James, the missionary there, he would just, he would just shake his head. He said, Brother Mitchell, you, you can't be polite with them. You'll never get a word in edgewise. And he was right. It's just like, well, I'm just trying to be polite. I figured that they'll eventually let me tell them what I think. But a lot of times it never happened. Why? Because that was their personality. And I'm sure that if God would have put me there as a missionary, I'd have to learn how to be a little bit more aggressive and assertive. 
But you know what? A lot of times the disputers of this world, if you really boil down the effectiveness of their ministry, they just overpowered you with their personality. Paul says, God brings that to naught. That is not what our faith needs to stand upon. Notice he says also that uh, verse number 21, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You know what gets a person saved? Just the simple preaching of the cross of Christ. It's such a simple and yet profound message. And it's something that, oh, it can be whispered or it can be trumpeted. But the saving message is the cross, not the way that it's preached. And so the simplicity of the message. You know, Jesus was a great illustrator, wouldn't you agree? How often did he tell a parable But, you know, if you really read closely what Jesus was doing, you know that sometimes he would speak the truth through a parable, not like we do. We tell illustrations to make the truth easier to understand. Jesus would tell it in a parable to make it hard for them to understand. Why why would he do that? Because Jesus knew the hearts of men Jesus knew that the only people that really need to understand are the people who really want to understand. He was a great, great community. He was a great, he used illustrations, but I don't find anywhere that I would say that Jesus was a great storyteller. I don't find that his parables are stories that people were like, oh, wow, he did such a great job telling that story. I don't find that anywhere. More often than not, I think those Pharisees were like, that was kind of dull. Jesus was a simple deliverer of a simple truth. He was very different than John the Baptist, but he had the same message. Basically, it was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think of Matthew 12, verse number 19 where it says, this is a quote from Isaiah, speaking of Christ's ministry, He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. What a great contrast. you got John the Baptist out there in the wilderness. I guess he wasn't street preaching, he was sand preaching. He's out there in the desert, and he's preaching, and it's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's out there yelling so that the masses can hear that message, and they're all flocking out to hear what this crazy man in a leathern girdle has, and this big old beard and hair all over him, what's this guy got to say? And the Pharisees came out. John had a very interesting invitation. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, they're coming out to hear what he has to say. He don't care. He's basically saying, why don't you just get out of here? You didn't come for the right reasons. But as a contrast, you have Jesus who's out there in the street. You probably wouldn't even hear him preaching across the road. You'd have to be gathered in real close. 
And he just quietly, in his way, would present the truth that his heavenly father had led him to preach. I find that the Apostle Paul's preaching was always centered on the cross. While there are many, as I've already said, many other vital truths in uh, the Scripture, the message of the cross is the most important. And certainly we can observe that Satan's desire is to complicate the message and cause confusion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse number 32, 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about the spiritual gifts, and one of the one of the big gifts that's talked about a lot in say the last one hundred years of Christianity is the speaking of tongues. First Corinthians fourteen really nails some of the false information that is being preached and believed in modern Christianity in America. But notice what Paul said. He said the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. I think that we need to really take to heart verse 33 and recognize the fact that God is not the author of confusion. And there are so many men and movements and personalities and pet doctrines And there's always going to be that, folks. Everybody has a different background. Everybody has a different personality. Hey, we are all very, very different. But we need to remember that God is not and never is the author of confusion. I remember the first time my dad took me quail hunting. I think I was in seventh grade. We lived in a little logging town called Horseshoe Bend, Idaho. Up in the foothills, kind of rolling, rolling hills with sagebrush and uh, really, in all honesty, except for in the heat of summer, is a very pretty place. But it was full of quail and chucker. If you don't know what a chucker is, a chucker is a oversized quail that works your legs off and laughs at you and you never do actually shoot one. Those of you that know what chucker hunting is all about, you got that joke. They, they just, they, they'll, you'll, you'll shoot at them and they'll, they'll fly up to the top of the hill. You'll see them there and they'll just say, come, come get us, come get us. And so you'll walk up to the top of the hill and just before you get within shotgun range, they'll fly right back down to the bottom of the hill and then they'll land and then they'll go, hey, okay, I'm going to get you this time. You'll go down the hill. And you just go back up and down the hill all day long and never even see a feather when you shoot. They're just so fast. Quail, on the other hand, when you flush a covey of quail, it's just, I mean, you practically step on them before they fly. And they're just all over the place. And so, I mean, I've got a a, a semi-automatic 20-gauge shotgun and so I'm thinking, I got, I got literally five shots here. I'm thinking, quail everywhere. Boom, 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 boom. And you know how many quail I hit? None. I'm not trying to be President Trump. Zero. None. My dad took two shots, and he shot two quail. And I'm like, Dad, how did I miss? He said, son, you can't look at the flock. You've got to look at each individual bird. Pick one out and shoot it 
and then put another shell in, pick out another bird, and shoot it. And you know, a lot of times we feel, we feel this guilt, we feel like that maybe God's trying to tell us something. I think I mentioned last Sunday, and it's worth repeating. The devil will come along and he'll say, you're bad, but he won't tell you what you did that was bad. It's just like a flock of quail. It's just confusion. It's just fluttering. But when the Holy Spirit comes around, he'll pinpoint, he'll say, this is what you did. It will have specific terms, and you'll know it in your mind. It will be focused on something that is true. It won't be focused on something that is just simply felt. When we feel something and there's no substance to put with that, The first reaction is, God, if this is you speaking to me, please show me what it is. And until he shows you what it is, we can assume that this is the spirit of confusion and this is not the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 3, Paul said, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Modern Christianity, with our men, our movements, our methods, a lot of times they'll get results, but it leaves a wake of confusion behind. Why? Because in so many cases, people are following the message or the method, the personality, if you will, And people have been, you know, there's a lot of shock and awe that goes on in preaching today. I used to preach to a lot of young people at camps. And I look back and uh, I've had several times that I preached and I pulled out the shock and awe tactic. You know, you you can give some shock and awe and you can get people's attention. You can invoke an emotion in someone and get a response. I remember vividly a uh, camp up in the mountains where the power went out, and literally the preaching in the chapel went on in pitch dark. And I mean, it seemed to me like the Holy Spirit moved in a mighty way. And there were two young men that came to the altar weeping, and I thought, wow, that is great. God, God knocked out the power, and this is what happened, and yet... Both of those young men, I'd have to say that absolutely no fruit, no Christian fruit came out of their life. In fact, both of them, their life ended up a spiritual and moral disaster. You know what I think happened? I think that because of the darkness and the circumstances, there was an emotional response, but it wasn't necessarily the Holy Spirit. We need to be wise, folks, and understand that salvation comes from the simplicity of a message, and that message is the cross of Calvary. We've had a gentleman show up at our street ministry several times in the last few weeks, and he's engaged a number of us in conversation, letting us know that we need to start telling people about the Holy Ghost and how that if someone gets saved, there's going to be the evidence of speaking in tongues. Well, when I'm out doing street ministry, trying to tell people about Jesus, I don't want to spend my time 
arguing Bible doctrine with someone. So I have to confess, I'm a little irritated by this. It's like, okay, well, why don't you leave us alone? If that's the message that you believe, then go get you some signs and go go do your thing. But leave us alone. We're not ignorant of what the Bible says. We just don't agree with what you think is true. And I thought about that, and, and, and when the man, the last time I talked to him, when he left, he said, he said, I want to encourage you to go home and pray and ask God to give you this gift that you'll speak in tongues. And, and I thought about that in light of our text here, and you know what? The Apostle Paul would have never made such a statement. This man is saying, you need to go home and have the same experience that I've had. But the problem is, really the major problem is a big problem in the fact that the focus was on an experience rather than on the cross of Christ. No focus on Jesus Christ. And by the way, my experience as a Christian, I have yet to find anyone who is all enamored with speaking in tongues and all of these apostolic signs and miracles and wonders, I've yet to find anyone that was truly a faithful witness in telling people about Christ. They'll tell you, did you get the gift? Did you speak in tongues? They are bold and passionate about that, but they hard, I, I hardly ever see them actually trying to tell people about the cross of Christ and how that what they need to know to be saved. Listen, bottom line here, folks, standing faith is placed entirely on the cross of Christ. If you don't get anything out of today's message, please take this with you in your heart. Standing faith is placed entirely on the cross of Christ. Secondly, I want to talk to you about the ethics of the messenger. We already read it in chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. So we won't read it again, but obviously Paul said repeatedly, Corinth, when I came to you, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My speech and my preaching, he said, was not with enticing words. It wasn't filled with man's wisdom. I didn't come and try to impress you. I didn't come and try to, uh, uh, try to manipulate your emotions. I feel certain that the church today is filled with manipulated or coerced conversions, strong-arm tactics, if you will. I know a lot of children's evangelism is extremely unethical. You know, you can take a little child who is impressionable, and you can get them to pray a prayer really quite easy. I mean, all you have to do is just say, hey, hey little Johnny... Oh, if anybody's named Johnny, I'm not singling you out. Hey, little Johnny, um, would, you, uh, would you like to go to heaven someday? Yes. Uh, you don't want to go to hell, do you, Johnny? No. Well, do you know that if you'll ask Jesus into your heart and save you, then you can go to heaven and you won't go to hell? Would you like to do that, Johnny? What do you think Johnny's going to say? He's going to say, well, Sure. And you know what? Johnny can pray a prayer and spend the rest of his life saying to himself that, yeah, I'm saved because I prayed that prayer. I did what the preacher said that I was supposed to do. And 
the Holy Spirit might not have been anywhere near that conversion experience. And I use that term very, very loosely. A lot of testimonies today, if they're not manipulated or or coerced, many of them are what I would call groupthink testimonies. What do you mean by groupthink? Well, it's kind of like peer pressure, only there's not any pressure. It's not like, you know, peer pressure is when you get around people that you care what they think about you, and they're all saying, hey, come on, join us and be like us. And if you don't, then we're going to ostracize you. You're not going to be cool. And so people yield to that pressure and give in to what their peers are telling them. Groupthink is not necessarily that the peer group is pressuring that person, but rather people are saying, you know what, all these people that I care about, they're Christians, they've been saved, and so, yeah, I guess I, I should get saved too and be, be like them because I love them and they love me, and it becomes a groupthink testimony. And there never was this conversion experience where the Holy Spirit showed up convicting you of sin and drawing you to the cross of Christ and showing that Jesus Christ died for you and then a person personally, individually, from their heart, placing their faith on what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. I, I heard, I've heard so many messages that, well, if you don't remember the time and place, then you're not saved. You know what? I remember a lot about when I got saved. I, I couldn't tell, I couldn't even tell you the year right now or the date because I, I don't know it. I went forward as a five-year-old boy and asked Jesus to be my Savior. Now, as I examine my life and according to what the Word of God teaches, I really think that I got saved as a five-year-old boy. I think that I fall in that category of suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not. But I know many children that they didn't really understand. It's just there was all this talk about salvation, and so the kid's saying, yeah, I want one of those too. Now, I went forward again when I was nine to try to make sure because I knew some things and understood some things as a nine-year-old that I didn't as a five-year-old. And then when I strayed away from the Lord in my high school years and then repented and got right, boy, God just made himself so real. And I thought, wow, if I wasn't saved before, I know I'm saved now. And you know, that seemed like such an innocent statement, but you know, the devil heard that. I'm certain that the devil heard that. Because as soon as I said that, it's like the devil said in, in my ear, well, if you don't know when you got saved, maybe you're not saved. Because I wasn't sure. Five, nine, 19. All I knew is what God had done in my heart and life. And so I went for a whole year, literally a whole year, trying to get saved again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And the whole time, it's like I'm, you know, if you're, before call waiting, if you called somebody and the line was busy, what did you get? 
So I'm calling on God. Oh God, I'm a miserable sinner. Please, really, I'm really under conviction this time and I really am believing and trusting. Would you please save me? God, why won't you save me? You know what was going on in my heart? Confusion. Preacher preached one time and he said, if you're not sure that you're saved, then you're not saved. You just need to chuck it and come down to this altar and you need to cry out to God to save you. You know what I did? I came down to the altar and did exactly what he said. And I begged God and I pled. And so he comes up and he said, he said, brother, he said, what, what has God done for you today? And I said, he saved me. You know what? I, I look back, I was going with the flow. That's, I was trying to say the right things so that I could get relief in my heart, so that I could have assurance, and so that I could have the same glorious testimony that all these preachers were talking about. Because I didn't get that as a five-year-old boy. It was just, I recognized I was a sinner, and that Jesus died on the cross. Oh, that's so boring. No, it's not. I hope you're following me here this morning, that there is so many testimonies that are not folk, they're focused on the prayer or the place or the, 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 the feelings. And they need to be focused on the cross of Christ. You know, there was a day and age, in fact, much of church history, for someone to accept Christ as their Savior and then publicly get baptized. You know, there was a huge cost that went with that. Persecution, family ostracization, uh, leaving you alone. I mean, you did not, you did not follow the group think. It wasn't popular to identify with Jesus Christ. In America, though, this quote unquote Christian nation, it's almost just the reverse. People are kind of like, oh, you're not a Christian? You've never been saved? And so it's just, it's just the opposite. People will sometimes get saved so that they can be popular among a peer group. It hasn't always been that case. And because of that cultural generational difference, we need to accept the fact that while that can be a huge blessing, there's also some unique pitfalls that the early Christians didn't have. Boy, you, you didn't, you didn't pretend to be a Christian back in the day because, unless you were just wanting to get your head chopped off or suffer or lose your income or all of those things that went with it. You got saved because you didn't, you recognized you were a sinner and you didn't want to go to hell and you didn't care what anybody thought of you. So we've got to, We've got to be wise enough to recognize that, just like Paul was wise enough to recognize that the church at Corinth, because of their carnal mentality, if he would have went in there with anything that wasn't just the simple cross of Christ, all he would have done would have been just puffed up their flesh rather than ministered to their need. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 13, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things unto this day. That's what the majority of 2,000 years of Christianity has been, the offscouring. Not like it is in the Bible Belt here in 2020 in America. 
Paul never tried to impress them with his wisdom or knowledge or overpower them with his confidence and his strong personality. I'm sure he probably could have. I think that Paul was as confident as they come. I think he was as bold and strong in personality as they come. But Paul was a man that had ethics and integrity, and he knew that he could get results, but he would be sacrificing the fact that when he moves on to another town and leaves, their faith would be standing in him, and he cared about their lives and their souls too much to just try to get results. He wanted to leave them with something that was unshakable, and that is a standing faith on the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Let's move on to number three for sake of time. How can we recognize the Holy Ghost in preaching? We said a lot here this morning about the message, the messenger, and the motives. But there are three simple things that are absolute Bible that will help us recognize the presence of the Holy Ghost in preaching. Number one, a Christ-centered, Bible-truth-filled message. That is essential. If you go, I don't care how much you like the way somebody says something. I don't care how entertaining and mesmerizing they are. I don't care how many results that they get. If their message is not filled with Christ-centered Bible truth, then there is no way that you and I can know if it's the Holy Spirit at all. It might just be people responding to a very gifted orator. 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 5, Paul said, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. In 2 Timothy 4, verse number 2, he said, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. So the Holy Spirit works when the messenger is preaching the Word of God and doing the things that God says preaching is for. He's reproving, He's rebuking, He's uh, uh, exhorting, He's giving instruction in righteousness and so forth. Then we can rest assured, you know what, the Holy Spirit is in that preaching. I've heard some famous, famous messages that were powerful messages. But when you boil it all down, you'd have to say there wasn't any Bible in it. It was an opening springboard text, and then the rest of it was story after story after story after story. And powerful, big results. But you cannot say that the Holy Spirit was all over it if there isn't a lot of the Word of God in it. Number two. Number two. The preaching will be filled with gentleness, meekness, and patience. Now, I understand that preachers get passionate. Uh, I've had times where I was passionately involved in what I was preaching. And to me, it's like, man, my heart was just breaking and I was passionate about it. 
and then have a conversation with, with my spouse. And, and it was almost like, well, that was you almost came across kind of mean. And I'm like, oh, no, I didn't. I, that's not what I was feeling. And, and that, I mean, that kind of definitely causes some frustration on my part. I know that preachers sometimes can be misunderstood. And I know that sometimes passion can be misunderstood for anger. But I will say this, that the message, if the Holy Spirit's in it, it needs to be filled with gentleness, meekness, and patience. Why do I say that? Because the Scripture says that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 24 says, The servant of the Lord must not strive. Not trying to overpower you or guilt trip you into responding. Not trying to make carbon copies of himself. Not striving like this is me against you. The Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. And you know how, how often I've heard testimonies where as a preacher, I'm preaching one thing and the Holy Spirit's over here speaking to someone about something that's not even related to what's being said. You know, you know what that is. That's, that's just, only God can do that. But then it says, verse 25, or excuse me, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. In other words, the, the, the messenger needs to tell you what the Bible says. Uh, not try to guilt trip you, but this is why I'm saying that you need to do this. That's that instruction. And then he says, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. I've said this before, and it's, it's, it's worth repeating. It's very encouraging to me personally when people come to the altar at the invitation time. I mean, but that's, that's personal. That's, in all honesty, that's selfish. Because the preacher, he's plowing and he's sowing in hope. When you sow those seeds in the ground, you want to see some fruit, right? And sometimes you see fruit right away. But I would rather see real fruit on down the road than to see someone come to the altar and bawl and squall and pray and cry and do all of those things and then nothing lasting change, not see any real lasting fruit. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I think that publicly coming to the altar, I think it's a good thing. Billy Graham said for years, there's something about that public uh, coming forward and not being ashamed of Christ. I think that that God uses the public altar. But, you know, every major thing that God has ever done in my heart and life, it did not take place at an altar. It took place at a private, just me and God place. One time it was out in the woods over a stump. Another time it was bowed over my bed in my bedroom with the door shut and literally just crying my heart out to God. I got up from that prayer. It looked like I wet the bed. I mean, that was a time, that was a personal time when God did a work in my heart and no one else was around. 
So God can do the work, but we've got to give the message of truth and give the Holy Spirit. God does not need our shock and awe to get a hold of people's hearts. He just needs us to tell people the message of the Word of God. And then number three, the Holy Spirit is in preaching. You can recognize it when that preaching is not presumptuous. Now, in James chapter number 3, before I read it, I want to give you a little background of the context. The beginning of James chapter number 3, James says, Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. That master is not talking about a boss, it's talking about a teacher. Someone who is teaching you the Word of God. God said, James said, don't, don't be looking for that because with that comes huge, huge accountability. We're going to be responsible. And then he goes on talking about the tongue and uh, the tongue being set on fire of hell and so forth and the accountability of what we say. And then he goes right into James 3.13 where he says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion. Hey, there's that word confusion again. What do we got here? We've got a messenger, a teacher who is overpowering people with his personality, manipulating them emotionally, giving them, you know, that wisdom that it's like, and, and I've heard this before. Well, you know what? If, if, if it got them to make a decision, then, then that's good. Paul didn't see it that way. God says, this wisdom, you better be careful. That Don't be presumptuous and think that results means that the Holy Spirit did it. And here's another caution to anybody that would preach like, uh, that would get behind a pulpit and preach to others. There are times when I feel like the Holy Spirit put His hand upon me and I preached extemporaneously. What do you mean by that? I mean, just, just thoughts are coming into my mind, and so I'm preaching what's coming into my mind. There have been times I think that the Holy Spirit was in that. There have been other times where I think, no, I just got carried away. I got carried away and I got comfortable. And when it was come, came into my mind, it came out my mouth. And then I look back, it's like, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. You know, maybe somebody over here needed that, but I just destroyed somebody over here. And that's not the way the Holy Spirit works. So when the Holy Spirit's working, there's not that presumption. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So we've seen some things from the Bible how we can recognize the presence of the Holy Ghost in preaching. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 36, He said, what? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, 
Let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. I, I, I know it goes without saying that many of the things that I have preached to you here this morning, there are good brothers, good preachers that love God that would take serious issue with what I've just said. Why? Because they are that dynamic personality and they think that emotional manipulation is the only real preaching. But you know what? I don't have to worry about that because I know that what I'm saying to you is not my feelings, it's not my personal opinion, it's what the Bible teaches. And we need to get back to what the Bible says that preaching ought to be. In conclusion, 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 6, Paul said, These things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up one, uh, one for puffed up for one against another. I've heard, I've seen this, where you show somebody what the Bible says, and they don't even care what you said. They're just processing it through, well, that's not what my guru said. That's not what my alma mater taught. And you you, you just get that resistance. You know what? It's not about any man. I thank God for the men that he's put in my life. I've got some men that have mentored me and taught me the Scripture, and some of them were taught by other great men, and then they turned around and taught me. I thank God for that. But when it's all said and done, if we really truly believe this book, why do we have to have such strife and contention over people who don't always see everything the same way? I'm not talking about important doctrines. I'm talking about just some things that are so, because of the internet, there are issues and controversies that just, they're, they're everywhere. And it seems like that's all that God's people talk about. We're not, we're not fighting the right fight here, folks. We're not fighting for the cross of Christ. We're fighting for our pet doctrine. And, and let me just say this. I, I, I've listened to so much of this in the last 10 years. If you want to go through the tribulation period, help yourself. Just don't take the mark of the beast, okay? Personally, I believe that the trumpet's going to sound before all of that horrible stuff happens. And I'm looking forward to that blessed hope. But if if you want to go through it, help yourself. (laughs) Don't look at me like I'm compromising. You know, there... there, (laughs) Uh, I got to move on here. I'm, I've already taken too much time. Second Corinthians chapter number four, verse number five. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Watch this, folks. Verse seven. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. There has never been a man preach the word of God, sincere or insincere, that wasn't a vessel of clay. 
that wasn't a sinner, that didn't have faults, that didn't have failures. There's never been a man that uh, has stood behind a pulpit and preached to a congregation and said one thing one way and got the applause of this person over here while the other person over here is offended. That's just the way that, that's the way that it works. It's just human nature. But we need to remember that every single messenger of God is still a vessel of clay. Paul said it about himself, about Apollos, about some great, great men of God who had God all over them. He said, you know what? This treasure, we have it in earthen vessels. Don't focus on the vessel. Focus on the content. And the content is the cross of Jesus Christ. My closing statement, and then we'll be done this morning. Let us be thankful for every man that faithfully preaches the truth. But let our praise be toward Christ alone and our faith, our faith standing on the cross. Is your faith standing on nothing else but the cross of Jesus Christ? If it's not, you can get saved by trusting the cross. You can get assurance by trusting the cross. But you're going to have to forget about the feelings. You're going to have to forget about the personalities. You're going to have to forget about all of those things. And you're just going to have to say, it's Christ and his cross and that alone. I shared with you, and I actually didn't plan on it, but I shared with you of how I struggled with my own personal salvation. And it took the Lord a year and much, much Bible reading for God to settle me in that. But ultimately, I had to come to the point where I said from my heart, with every fiber of my being, I said, God, you know what I've been going through. I've been so confused. Something keeps telling me that I need to get saved, but yet I look at what you've done in my life, and I I can't discredit that. I know I didn't do it. I know you did that in my life. I know I I, I hate sin. I don't want to be like I used to be. I, I know I love the brethren. I know that I want to know you and all of those things. And so all of that confusion that would swirl around in my mind, I finally just came to the point where I said, God, I can't just keep struggling with this. I said, God, if you don't want to save me, I don't deserve to be saved anyways. And if you drop me into hell, you will be just and good, and I will get just exactly what I deserve. But God, if I go to hell... I'm going to hell trusting what your son did on the cross of Calvary. And that's what I'm staking. Everything in my life is on the cross of Christ. And you know what? I know from God's word that if that's what I'm trusting, I'm not going to go to hell. But I will say this. When I finally just came to the point where it's like, you know what? That's it. That's it. I'm not going to struggle with this. I'm just going to trust and I'm just going to move on and keep serving the Lord, I found that the Holy Spirit started speaking to me through His Word rather than the confusion in those mixed voices. You know, if you ever if you ever listen to a premonition in your mind and attribute it to the Holy Spirit and it was actually an evil spirit, the devil's got you where he wants you. And the only way to get out of that confusion is to focus on the book 
and not the premonition.